Okay, episode 13 of Thelma and Tom Look Left, and uh, thank you all for tuning in. And I'm glad to say that um, Thelma's back with us this week. We really missed her last week, and we did our best, but it's not the same. And so, yeah, hello, Thelma. Hope you're well. Hi, Tom. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. And returned um, from the uh, Hartlepool by-election, which was an amazing experience and wonderful to meet lots of people in Hartlepool. And uh, yeah, I, I I know that the there weren't a lot of votes in it for, for the NIP but actually we got the message out about the North-South divide and inequality and that was really the uh, the aim of, of, of me standing um, so yes um, I uh, yeah I'm, I'm glad to have had a bit of a rest though because it's pretty exhausting yeah. any campaigning pretty exhausting but uh, it's yeah. good to see you Tom and I did miss our podcast last week yeah, I could tell from the conversations that we had now and again during the fortnight that, that you're away that you were pretty, uh, you know, it was exhausting for you. I could see that. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it was it was tiring, but exhilarating as well. And um, and also just listening to local people and the issues um, that were important to them and, um, and to watch what was happening with the other uh, parties as well. And uh, that was quite interesting watching that and had lots of interviews with really interesting good people um so uh, yeah that that was positive and a great team around me um from the northern independence party so uh, so lots of positives to take from it and um, yeah. i think something that watch this space membership is still increasing and uh, lots happening well, we're going to talk about the northern independence party later with philip i've got a few things i need to talk about and um uh, and before that, uh, Thelma and myself are going to um, have a, a closer look at the, um, the the way the elections went and the chaos that's come after it. But before we get to that, uh, we both feel that we want to say something about the situation in the Middle East, which is just heartbreaking. And um, it's not a subject we've covered on this podcast so far. It is one we want to get to. It's a difficult one to deal with, to be honest. Um, and I, I don't know, Thelma. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it just uh, breaks well, my heart that kind. Yeah, of... what we're seeing, the scenes we're seeing, um, and what we're hearing about um, of of what is happening to Palestinian people at the moment. Um, and 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 now um, people uh, Israelis being um, hurt as well, um, but this has been an ongoing situation where Palestinian people have been forcibly uh, being removed from their homes, um, and now we're seeing children, uh, a number of children being killed um, in the rocket attacks, and it, well, as we say, it is just so heartbreaking and I, I think um, the thing as well was the invasion of the Israeli troops of the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, during Ramadan um, which I, I just is uh, such a violation really in a holy place um, and in my, to my in my opinion unreasonable force and um, I think that has escalated things um, and um, I mean, for me, obviously, working with children all my life to see some of these small children, um, you know, hurling rocks and then the responses, you know, rocket attacks and now Hamas involved in, in retaliation. And that, again, is escalating the situation. While it seems to me that the world powers are just watching on um, 
And I think that's the outrageous thing. Um, and uh, when, when you think that, you know, what the UN have declared and, you know, the possibility and the hope that there will be a two-state solution, um, I, I just find uh, that the current situation was totally unnecessary. Um, and um, I, th- I think the world is looking on now, but, but you know, this aggressive behaviour from the is- Israeli armed forces is, has gone on for so long. Um, and it's been clear that, uh, that, that um, Palestinians, many of them, um, have been without electricity, without fresh water, um, there's no port, there's no airport, you know, all, all of these things um, reflects what I consider to be an apartheid system and um, and it needs saying, um, uh, but ongoing horrible situation at the moment and my heart goes out to the to the Palestinian people and indeed civilians in Israel that are, are, are victims of, of uh, retaliatory attacks from Hamas but it was inevitable that would happen um, um, with with what what the Israeli soldiers have been doing with these forcible evictions etc yeah yeah I I'm 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 with you totally on that Thelma um yeah I it's life sometimes is just almost too difficult to look at isn't it and uh, it's such a uh, a dichotomy type situation or some kind of weirdness about being in this situation where those kind of things are going on in the world and and um you know we 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 have no choice but to just get on with our lives and uh, i um yeah it but it's kind of throws a shadow over everything yes, really really it does. does especially as it's Eid um uh, now and uh, Muslims around the world should be celebrating, but surely you know nobody can celebrate when this is happening and uh, civilians no. are being are being yeah. murdered. But I do hope it can be resolved, and I do hope it can be fairly resolved uh, for everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm bearing that in mind. You know, if the podcast is a little bit, you know, whatever happens, we don't know. But the podcast might be uh, slightly more muted than usual or it might just go back to how it was. But what, even if it does go back to how we normally are, we, our, our kind of ethos of of trying to be, you know, uh, a nice, easy listen and so on, uh, we, we, we hopefully will get to that. Uh, but if we do, it doesn't mean we're forgetting the suffering that's going on in other parts of the world or in anyone else's lives anywhere. Um, anyway, so anyway, yeah. So anyway, last weekend... Well, last Thursday, a week ago today, amazingly, was polling day. And, um, yes, yeah, some astonishing results. But the main thing I want to talk to Thelma about is the... Uh, I mean, it wasn't a total disaster for the Labour Party, Thelma. Um, and I think one of the most interesting parts was that, uh, obviously, the Labour Party totally panicked and started having all kinds of knee-jerk reactions, only to find out that actually they hadn't done so badly in some areas. And if they'd have just, you know, held their tongues a bit, which is what any normal person would have done, you know, wait and see a bit, let's let's not jump to conclusions, um, they would have found out they did very well in Wales, they did very well in Manchester, they did very well in Preston, and I think they did very well in a few other places too. I think they did quite well in the West Country. Um, but uh, I, 
obviously I'll, I'll let you speak about that, Thelma, before I draw my conclusions, see if you've come to the same conclusion as me on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a disaster if you look at the councils. I mean, the Conservatives gained 278 plus, I think it was, uh, councillors. Um, Labour lost 219 and Greens gained 62. So at a council level generally, um, and Tories have gained 11 uh, overall control, um, you know, of, of, of actual councils and Labour have lost five. So that's not great. Um, but then the later results that came out, you're quite right, Tom, um, that which was the mayoral elections where, you know, Andy Burnham um, swept the board in, in Manchester, Steve Rotherham, Liverpool, Paul Dennett, Salford, Sadiq Khan in London, Marvin Reese, Bristol, and Tracy Brabin, uh, first woman uh, mayor um, in Leeds City region. So that was great, but that was that was a day or two later. And what does, what does Keir decide to do but sack Angela Rayner? Yeah. So instead of all of that being over the press, um, you know, yeah. I've talked before about this lack of political nous. Um, and uh, instead of saying, OK, we've a lot to learn about what happened in a number of, of, of council seats and a number of areas. Um, but look at this. We need to celebrate um, this. Um, what's all over the headlines um, is um, the sacking of, um, of Angela Rayner as his yeah. deputy and chair of the party, um, followed by Nick Brown, of course, the chief whip, yeah. um, who's been there forever. Um, uh, why, you know, the timing of that um, and the rationale for that, um, well, I, I, I just... Can't fathom that at all, uh, Tom. <laughs> well, it was quite odd, really, uh, Thelma, because he go, he go, Keir Starmer uh, stands up and sort of boldly says, I'll take full responsibility for this disaster. And about five minutes later, he sacks Angela Rayner. And you just think, well, hang on a minute. So, of course, in the press, it was like, well, you take full responsibility, so why are you sacking her? And um, Well, I, I uh, always have to do a kind of, uh, you know, her teacher, school teacher analogy because that's my background. And it was like as a head, if you had a deputy or, a, you know, assistant head or whatever, if something went wrong in school, you might in your office, if it was your deputy had dropped the ball or whatever, you might in your office say, oh, you know, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, but out there, as a leader, you you have to take responsibility. That's what you're paid to do. That is true leadership, is taking responsibility. Um, and it's a sign to me of a, of a, of a weak leader even if he had a reason to do it, um, I, I, which we've not really heard about, um, the, or nothing justifiable, I don't think, at the present time. But um, even so, as a leader, um, and, and also, of course, remember, he, he, he's recently mentioned that Jeremy, it's the kind of long Jeremy accusation, you know, of uh, <laughs> the legacy of Jeremy, which Jeremy yeah, recently what? has come out. I loved it, actually, when he, he said, it. did he say something about it's a bit rich blaming me? Yeah. I just thought that was wonderful. And, and that's, that's as strong as you'll ever get from Jeremy. <laughs> well, he's a master of understatement and it's so powerful. And, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, I mean, he, basically, Jeremy Corbyn won that election, really. But um, I, I'm sure that'll annoy quite a few people, so I probably shouldn't have said it. Um, so the, the t there's two interesting things that have come out of that, of course, is this this whole thing about Angela Rayner is fascinating because she was like um, uh, a staunch 
ally of Jeremy's. And then she kind of, she, fair do, she won the um, deputy leadership. That was fair enough. And, um, and the hope, of course, was that she would be the deputy to Rebecca. But Rebecca didn't do so well. And she, so she ended up becoming the deputy to Kia. And, uh, and everyone's got, I was thinking, well, how's that going to work? Because I kind of had Angela down as a quite a left winger, really, and pretty, you know, pretty on it. And then gradually over the months, it's become apparent that she's just, well, I don't know, I don't want to, I'm no expert, but it seems like she blows in the wind a little bit. And, um, uh, and, and, and then all of a sudden, Kia turns on her. And then people's popping up supporting Angela all over the place. And uh, apart from the few on the real out uh, hard left, whatever you want to call them, outside left, I don't want to call them hard left because that's crap saying. But, um, you know, on Twitter, you'll see people won't ever say anything good about anyone once they've made one mistake. Um, But it was interesting to see, I thought, uh, and I was just thinking, well, you, you've worked with Angela. I mean, what's she yeah, like? Yeah, she's it, an amazing woman. Um, I, I mean, and, and the fact that, you know, like Owen Jones, uh, the three of us all come from the same area. I was born in Manchester, but grew up in Greater Manchester in the Stockport area. And so um, Owen's obviously a lot younger than me. Um, but um, but Angela, Owen and myself all, all come from the same part of the world. Um, so there is that kind of affinity there. And certainly I work... Uh, fairly closely with Angela when um, she was um, SOS for education. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, I think, first of all, what Keir's done, uh, whatever your views are on Angela and the politics and how she's dealt with things, um, you know, um, a working class woman um, that has come from her background um, and the fact that we've already had Becky Long Bailey um, sacked, um, another uh, northern working class woman. It's not. It's not great. It's not great messaging, is it? Um, no. So from that point of view, we're talking about that political lack of political nous. I think that that is not good for what is supposedly a democratic socialist party. That your key players, uh, very able working class background women, um, have have been sacked, or you know, Angela's got these. Multiple roles now that she's been she's been offered. Um, I always think with people, it's not for me to judge. Angela is a very able woman, a very strong, very brave woman. But I, I always think you do you do look at somebody's track record. And um, I, I did work closely with Angela. She worked very closely with Jeremy, but then said that you know to a journalist that Jeremy had. Um, uh, lost the respect of the PLP or the PLP didn't respect him when things were looking um, down in terms of the polls and, you know, in Jeremy's position. Um, and now um, she's now saying that Kia in the campaign, people didn't, didn't understand um, what the Labour message was. And I just think there's a bit of a pattern there which I'm yeah. a bit disappointed. Let me put that like that. I'm, yeah. dis- I'm disappointed um, that if you've been by the side of somebody and working very closely with somebody, surely you are supporting it. And if you're not, in my opinion, then you step down, which is what I did from Labour because I couldn't, um, hand on heart, say that I supported what Keir was doing and so I couldn't stay in Labour. 
Um, and that's what I think people should do. <laughs> but it, it doesn't always happen that way. And I think to stay and support somebody for a period of time means you are committed to what they are delivering in my this is just my view Mm. and if you don't agree with it then you step away from it I don't think it's right to stay with it and then when it goes wrong to say well this is what was wrong because to me if you're working very closely with somebody then then you are part of it (laughs) yeah you're partly responsible for it so that's my view um but as you say, Tom, a lot of people are coming out in support. And I, I can see that in terms of a, a working class woman um, being sacked and, and scapegoated, if you like. Um, but, but I do see a bit of a pattern emerging, emerging mm. here uh, mm. with what happened with Jeremy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interestingly, going back to the areas that did well, quite a few of those areas that did well are um, politically left. And uh, and places like Hartlepool and all these places that did really, really badly for Labour uh, are a kind of directionless, you know, um, there is no policy and uh, no one does know what uh, Kia stands for and what Labour stands for. But in those areas where the uh, leaders are standing up and saying, this is what we stand for, this is what we're about, the people like that. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that since that election and, and before that election, really, we've had um, Mandelson and Blair and one of the others, uh, you know, all over the Labour Party and take almost looks like they're trying to take control again and, and, and run it how they want to run it, which is basically have a party that says nothing and just does sort of public relations. Uh, and and they're, all, they're all there saying, you know, this is the way we're going to get back into power and da 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 And you know, it's completely opposite to what's actually happened last week. Uh, which I find quite interesting too. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, it, it it is almost like I think at an, in an earlier episode I talk about I talked about these um, elder statesmen that think they're still back in ninety ninety seven, um, and they think they can replicate what happened then. And society, you know, we've had ten years of austerity. We've just had a pandemic for over a year. Society and especially younger people and and people living in deprivation are really suffering at the moment, um and it it's those uh, democratic socialist policies that were in the seventeen ninety manifesto for Labour, which actually Mark Drakeford in in Wales. Um, what was committed to, um, and and is upholding, um, that is what is needed at the moment. In fact, more radical policies, in my opinion, are needed, um, and so you can see that Andy Burnham made a stand against the Tories in Manchester, um, and has gone, you know, public ownership of the bosses and all all of those many of the things that were in the manifesto in nineteen seventeen and nineteen, and so you you can see. Um, where we've been successful, it's where the messaging, as you say, Tom, is very clear. And it's about people can see this is going to impact positively on my life and on my children's lives um, and on society. 
and when there's clear messaging and the irony of somebody like Peter Mandelson going back to his former seat and doing a vlog and telling people what they should think. The rot started for Labour way back when. They might have won those elections, but it was selling out on socialism, in my opinion. And we've been losing votes in the North ever since then. It's been nothing to do with losing votes because we didn't in 2017. Um, that vote share went up. So it's, it's a nonsense um, to say that they can return and impose uh, that uh, neoliberal um, uh, kind of po- neoliberal policies uh, on the current society because it just won't work and it's what the where the rot set in and nobody ever mentions losing all those seats in Scotland in 2015 or hardly anybody mentions it so we've lost the it's not just the red wall we lost Scotland as well um, it's been happening over a number of years and they just like to just like throw Jeremy's name in at any point. And, <laughs> you know, it's a completely false narrative, isn't it? Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're peddling. People uh, are kind uh, of seeing it now. The joy for me is, I think, out of all this misery with everything, is, is that I actually think it's like the scales are falling from people's eyes and people are saying, actually, that was just rubbish wasn't it that that's when it started you know um and and i think i think the public a lot of the public and um i mean some don't and i I just think it's step by step getting the message out of of how things have gone wrong and but clear messaging you're right tom has worked and and clear democratic socialist policies are working yeah yeah Okay, we could go on and on, Thelma, as always. <laughs> we I, could. I, I, um, I've got so many more things on my list that I'd really like to talk about. Hopefully we'll get to some of those with Philip when he gets here. But anyway, uh, there you go. That's the end of part one, and we'll see you in a minute or two. Thank you very much. Okay, so here we are. Welcome back to part two and welcome to our special guest, Philip Proudfoot, who I'm sure most of you know. Um, I'm not sure what his official role is, but he's connected in some way to the Northern Independence Party. And also, he, Philip is the core leader and founder of the Northern Independence Party. And he's also a very close friend of my co-host, Thelma Walker. So there you go, Thelma. Yet again, another of your close friends. One day I'm going to have one of my close friends on here, I reckon. <laughs> well, yeah, well, obviously, uh, Philip and I have uh, had lots of conversations over this last few months. And, uh, yeah, proud proud to work with you, Philip. And, uh, you know, as founder of the Northern Independence Party, what an achievement within a, a few months um, to to have done what what you've done. Um, but just just before we talk about about NIP, um, one of the conversations we've not had in much detail is about your work as a, a lecturer at uh, yeah. Sussex University, is it? Yeah, at the Institute uh, for Development Studies at, at Sussex University. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just mean, to a- um, just to ask you about that, but also I have um, very good warm memories of uh, Sussex University. Our youngest son uh, did English literature there, studied English literature there, and um, um, and I loved to visit him um, when he was at Sussex. So I've got personal warm memories. But I'd I'd love to know about your work there. 
Well, it's actually, it's actually, it's a brand new job. I only started in January. So I've only been to the campus once because. So you founded a party as well as starting a new job. Yeah. Like you do. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I was, I was applying for permanent academic positions while also trying to found uh, not only a party, but of course, but a new country. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But yeah, it's a new, it's a new job, but I, um, I'm, um, Predominantly, I'm working on things around the refugee crisis um, and how activist groups are seeking to provide humanitarian assistance, and but also lots of other diverse things. So I was telling you, Thelma, that I could be going to Yemen soon for a UN evaluation of the of the aid relief effort in Yemen. Um, I'm working on a project that's looking at how rights to uh, rights to asylum among refugees are under assault um, in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic because what we generally know is that when you have these states of emergency what happens is you have new pieces of legislation put in place and they're very rarely repealed and there are like interesting like dynamics at play around that how that's happening insofar as for instance we saw in the Queen's speech you know there's now going to be processing facilities for refugees which which can be justified under sort of um, epidemiological terms that, you know, you need to prevent this like rapid spread of um, infections among uh, among um, migrants and refugees into the UK. But those processing centres won't disappear, right? They'll remain. And this is what consistently happens. So repurposing the army barracks in, in, Nap- in Napier, for instance, the same thing, like increasingly once that happens, it, it just sticks. And it's not only in the UK, it's also across Europe and the world we see this like assault on migration and that does actually feed into NIP by the way you know one of the reasons I founded the party is because the north is imagined to be this place well, I, I was just about, anti-asylum and yeah anti-mind. I was just about to ask you Philip about how how your work that you do um has informed your politics and prompted you yeah. to uh to to be the founder of NIP um would you say that's kind of fundamental as to as to why it, it, it is fundamental yeah because I spent most of my academic life studying countries that have been subjected to civil wars and mass instability and have deep structural inequalities. And then I would read statistics about um, the differences between, you know, different parts of Lebanon, for example, um, the periphery and the core and the overdevelopment of Beirut versus the the underdevelopment of this. And I was like, wait, this sounds like the UK now. And I would think that, you know, And then I looked and then I saw that actually, you know, the statistical differences between the south of England and the north are kind of similar to the sorts of differences you'd see in a country that's a few years into a recovery from a civil war. And that's really curious when you consider England hasn't had a civil war for a very long time, yet somehow through policy decisions, we've reproduced that. So if you look at, for instance, you know, the the, the starkest example of this is in Blackpool, the healthy years, which are the years you enjoy um, in good health. In Blackpool, is something like 59. And then in Richmond upon Thames, it's like 79. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is yeah. just And life expectancy as well. Um, yeah, yeah, life, life expectancy. Li- literally, you will die sooner, more north you are born. Um, and and, and that, that, is a, that, is a, that is a decision that's taken, or that it's structural, you know, it's to do with where money goes, it's how funding is allocated, um, it's to do with opportunities and forms of labour. It's a whole like mesh of things that produce that statistic. But nonetheless, it's something that we see in, in you know, what we call the global south. And there's this tendency now 
within international development to, to sort of decolonize. And for me, decolonizing means also like looking at how this discipline has developed in the global south and seeing how it has actual insights for conditions that are now occurring within the global north. And there's another thing I find interesting about that, which is that in my discipline, we tend to think of like humanitarianism as a thing that goes on in countries in, 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 the, in the global south, right? But it, and then if a humanitarian organization or someone like the UN makes a comment about how austerity has killed X amount of people in the UK, people go crazy because the mentality is those comments should only be occurring in places like Africa. Those countries should, they should not be occurring in the UK. But the, it's not because it's not war that causes people to die with no recourse to public funds. You no. know, that that's a do, decision. Do you remember when um, Philip Alston from, from the UN, the rapporteur, um, yeah. reported on poverty and deprivation? Exactly. Um, yeah. There was outrage then well. about yeah. what he said. Absolute outrage, yeah. yeah. Because we th it, the way it works is humanitarianism and development is what goes on in the global south activism and politics is what happens in the global north but when you you have those humanitarian bodies speaking about the uk people's like their, their brains can't take it they go crazy like jacob reese mogg in response to the unicef comments uh, basically telling unicef to go back and keep working in the global south don't comment on situations <laughs> in the uk Just unbelievable isn't um, it unbelievable yeah. so yeah. so well um what when are you due to go out to yemen then well, it, um, I have to go and do heat training, so I have to go and do like, um, um, you know, like the special dangerous active, <laughs> dangerous area oh, training. In the, I, I always imagine it's going to be in the woods somewhere where someone's going to like fake kidnap me or something. <laughs> so I've got to do that first. And then we have to look at the we have to look at the um, situation in terms of uh, epidemiological situation, because it's not only COVID in Yemen right now. It's also there's a cholera outbreak. Uh, mass, um, and then we have to look at the conflict and decide, but it could be within a few months, um, but Gosh. it's not clear. Well, that's, uh, uh, yeah. I wish yeah. you well with that and um, and a, a very worthwhile visit, I would think. I, you always have this picture yeah. of um, university lecturers in a, um, a room with bookshelves and, and sitting there studying <laughs> and having, doing tutorials. You don't really picture them out there at frontline in, that in is, Yemen. That is the great thing about where I work is that um, IDS is, is both, we do teach students and we do do research, but we also take part in lots of um, consultancy with like UN type stuff, looking at effectiveness and we try and use like applied knowledge and um, that kind of thing. It's very much engaged and it seeks to make a difference. Yeah. So that's a good look there for my employer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're certainly making a difference, Philip. And I know Tom's, uh, Tom's got some questions for you about uh, NIP, haven't you, Tom? Well, obviously, Philip, I'm down south. And, um, you know, we pre-NIP, quite often you'd see people from England going, oh, look at... Um, look at what's happening in Scotland, if only we had a party like that. And then uh, suddenly there's NIP and the people down south are going, well, the, or the lefties or the socialists down south are going, eek, I can see where this is going. Um, I mean, i got to be honest, I don't think it is going to go there. But if, if, it, if it did go there and, and Northumberland or Northumbria or whatever it was did become a separate country, that leaves us even more in a little island of um, right-wing 
fascist-inclined Tories uh, and even less likely to ever get rid of them. We've already lost the balance of Scotland um, and, you know, Wales has, could go and soon it's going to just be England. Uh, yeah. um, I, I think we need a national party um, saying what Northern Independence Party say. That's basically yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, well, the first point, um, in the North Northumbria, the, which we define as, you know, above the, above the Humber, including Cheshire and all of Yorkshire, um, has a similar type relationship in terms of like Tories and who we vote for, as does Scotland. So generally, if, if the North was an independent country, it would never ever have returned to conservative government ever. So the same critique that you get from Scotland does apply to the North of England. We, we are pulled into Tory governments by voters in the South in the same way, right? So, we, so there is a kind of claim there. That claim could be addressed through electoral reform, um, but no major political parties are supporting electoral reform. And it could be, it could be addressed through a movement that seeks to generate independence, or push regional issues to the front and center of um, political discourse. But I, you know, as the founder of NIP, it's not for me to determine what happens in the south of England. If the south of England wanted to form its own Wessex independent movement, I would, or, you know, you already have Cornish independence movements. Obviously, NIP would look to work with those groups. My political view my broader view, this is not the view of NIP, is that the future of politics in this country ought to be around um, municipal socialism, regionalism, and addressing the concentration of wealth and power in the Southeast. So obviously large parts. So that's not to say that there isn't poverty in the Southeast. When I say that, I don't even like saying that bit, because that, that's what they always make us say whenever we talk about Northern poverty, we have to acknowledge its existence in London. I would quite like it if leftists talking about poverty in London began by acknowledging the existence of poverty in Gateshead. They won't, but yes, I acknowledge poverty exists in Hackney, but it exists because of the exploitation. One of the reasons it exists is, is because of the hyper-exploitation um, in London, it exists because of the exploitation of the North. So huge flows of people, limited housing stock, allowing for manipulation of property costs. Because we live in the most unequal country um, in the developed world in terms of like power and, and finance, that feeds that overdevelopment. So yeah, I think there actually should be a coalition of movements outside of the capital, outside of the home counties, demanding um, a greater redistribution of wealth and power not just for the north, but also parts of the Midlands, uh, parts of the southwest, where you see the same phenomena. Just the you know the northeast happens to be the worst. It happens to be the worst. Northwest is second. This is how it actually is. But that doesn't mean that you know the Midlands and the southwest doesn't also d deserve its own independence movement. Um, and then linking that together in a in a bid to address regional inequality. That's my vision. But I can't make that part in the south because. Remember, we're also dealing in history, right? We're dealing in a particular moment where the North is now seen to be this new space for Tory victory. So we want to speak back to that with a Northern accent about, hey, you know, don't put us all as like flat cap bigots. You know, this is not actually, there's a whole host of traditions and we're trying to speak back to that. Um, so that it kind of, it, 
I understand what you're saying and I support those movements, but there's particular reasons why NIP has been successful. It's because, because of the way we've been used to advance the Tory agenda. Sorry can I'm too I just say, um, Philip, can I just ask you, uh, this is obviously totally, totally hypothetical and, and uh, probably unlikely to happen, but suppose something happened like happened in 2015 where uh, a really charismatic, powerful leader came along and got the left fired up again and united again in the UK would NIP stand against them? It would depend. For me, uh, I can't, because we're a hyper-democratic party, so we haven't passed any decisions on that. But my own position in such a scenario would be, we would, I would want to look at what are, the, what are their policies to address regional inequality. If they're putting regional inequality front and centre of the agenda, if they're going to have come forward with, for instance, uh, rolling out the Preston, what I really want to see is the Preston model, uh, community wealth building, rolled out across all of the North to address the managed decline of our towns and cities. If that kind of agenda was put forward and it, there was a charismatic leader and I would love it if our party got behind them and we would take that to our members and we would discuss it and make it and make a decision. Um, the one thing that unites all of us is our in, in, in NIP is is a concern for addressing regional inequality. So, yeah, it would just it would depend on that, basically. Yeah. I mean, are I, we still going to have crap trains if the trains are going to be improved? You know, like, well, we'll I think talk. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more to it than that, surely. But I think <laughs> um, I think um, if uh, the next time uh, a movement comes along, like like what we've just witnessed, 2015, 2019, that they're not going to mess about, or I would say we we wouldn't mess about. We will get uh, proper democracy, proper people's democracy set up. It won't be a few people down in London telling us how it's going to be. It'll be everybody nationwide saying how it's yeah. going to be. Um, and that's uh, that is the only way I can see that it would work. Yeah, I really agree with that, Tom. Because I think if we think about first of all, like. It, when, when I say these things, I always put little clarifications on. First of all, Corbyn was quite well supported in the North. If you look at the votes in 2017 and in 2019, it's not true that Northerners disliked him, right? But those who Can did Can I just jump questions. in there and say I won the seat in yeah. Cone Valley? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But there was still there was still an image that I heard from people like my granddad and his friends and that this was a London movement, Right. You had, you know, like they sent Ian Lavery up to do his tours around the north to try and like keep people on side and stuff. But there was still a sense that it was sort of like um, quite serious, quite pious, sort of North London, like vegan. Like there was this feeling to it that um, that was hard that I heard. I mean, it's still not the case that people voted against it. They didn't. Uh, the voting numbers are still really high. But one of the ways it could be addressed is by having that those those principles and policies that were developed uh, with also a strong regional focus. I think that's the winner. I really think that's the winner. Um, and yeah, I would assume that people in NIP would agree with me, but I can't speak for them. So you know that I'm really interested in a um, on a personal level on a progressive left alliance, um, Philip. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of um, bringing the left together, the movement um, yeah. together? 
Well, the, the challenges that we face, although we're doing okay, but the main challenge we face is uh, resources, I think, is that people don't, I think people don't actually realize how incredibly expensive politics is. <laughs> and our, you know, we don't have the campaign finances out yet, but um, it'll be really interesting to see what the expenses, what the spend was in, in, in Hartlepool. Because, uh, you know, in a by-election, there's basically no limit. I think it's like 100,000, whereas there's a much tighter limit in a general election. And we suspect that the major political parties just threw money at it. Labour appear to have spent that money um, in a very a very strange way, just pouring it into like advertisements in the Hartlepool Mail. But a progressive alliance, if we had enough members contributing monthly, we could potentially build enough money to do the kind of um, hyper-targeted seats where we could actually stand to win candidates. So the main, the main, the main advantage I see for that is, um, is yeah, improving coordination, skill sharing, resource sharing. Um, you know, like a lot of the other new left parties, um, while they've got like really good people behind them organizationally, what they don't have is like NIP social media skills. And that's like something we could share um, if we went forward. And, the, in some and that's sort of really one of the strengths, I think, I'm sure you'd agree in having an alliance because each different group or smaller left political party that's just been established will have its own strengths, presumably. Yeah. And what we can yeah. see is that NIP, yeah. its strength was the social media platform. Yeah. Um, and especially with the younger generation. Um, whereas other groups will maybe have been established for longer, maybe have stood candidates um, in the past. Might even be registered with the Electoral Commission. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> um, but I think yeah. that, you know, I do believe in, in that um, unity is strength. And um, yeah. I, I'm feeling much more optimistic, even though... Obviously, on a personal level, I did have to take it on the chin when we lost the deposit. Um, and I know there's all sorts of reasons. And if you understand the electoral yeah. system, you, you'll know why. Um, yeah. The success, of course, as you, as you know, Philip, is that we got the message out about the North-South divide. Not, um, not only that, Thelma, when we, when we spoke with our campaigns coordinator about our objectives, it was, it was to use that by-election as a sort of announcement. And we announced ourselves. We increased our membership by an, a mad percentage when your candidacy came forward to the point that we're now almost able to employ a member of staff, which is a huge win for any new political party because you, you can't rely on people just doing work for free. It's not morally right. It's not fair and it's not effective. So we've got we've got a membership now that can, can basically afford to pay someone. We uh, moved from 20,000 to 60 something thousand followers. We gained headlines. We put we we then got Andy Burnham it's basically doing our agenda after he won. Yeah, that was interesting, like, wasn't it? When he was speaking the other day, I could hear some of our manifesto. Can you explain that to me. Explain that to me. What happened? <laughs> Andy Burnham after he won the the uh, Manchester May, he went on the in his in his speech. He was talking about the importance of region and place for developing a new politics and the importance of like not of increasing devolution. Basically, I mean, I think he's thought these things for a while. So we don't want to say that we that's totally us. But I'm sure that he's seen the NIP's ability to find a kind of coalition of support. You know, because a, a party is not just the election. Like it's also us building this machinery 
Um, and and when people talk about our result, we weren't on the we weren't registered. We still UKIP in their very first election got 0.2% of the vote. We got more than that. And we dominated the headlines. We had high profile interviews. We punched far above our weight. And we're brand new. I mean, it, it, it's the, the, the we also one of the other objectives, by the way, was that we wanted to have like a kind of a practical reason for people to start developing skills to contest elections because it's a skill set. So that gave people that first experience. And like someone said, you know, Thelma's name will now go down in the history of Northumbria. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, the thing for me was, uh, I was saying to Tom at at the beginning of our chat that um, it was a really positive experience because, you know, obviously people who don't like me very much, they've gone for me on social media and said, hey, you don't, you only got 250 votes and all that business. But you know what? I've taken that on the chin because um, for me, talking to the different community groups in Hartlepool, finding out more about Hartlepool, and I, we, both my husband and I, we grew to love the place and, and the people, yeah. and it was a really positive experience because a lot of people living there are really proud of where they live, and yeah. I saw the potential um, I knew there was no chance that I, I would become Hartlepool's MP. I mean, obviously, you put your best effort into a campaign. I always do with anything yeah. I do. I commit to it. Um, but but there was a, a great a, the great sense of pride in the place um, that I picked up from the people and the mm. potential. I mean, if I had ever you know, been elected, I could I could have hit the ground running there because I I know yeah. from engaging with the community groups just exactly what could be realized there um and the potential that's there is amazing and you know what what makes you different to the other candidates and why you with that hands down would have been the best representative for hartlepool is what you're talking about now talking about engaging with the community groups a thing that the labor party's left behind that there should not be a vicar running a food bank speaking out against the leadership she, that is a core institution within the community where the labor party should be offering practical support it should be there. It should be assisting these groups because that's how we win. You know, like the big problem that the Labour Party faces is that, you know, with, with the lessening power of trade unions and the, and the decline in like traditional forms of labour in the workplace, you need new coalitions of supporters. And we should take lessons from the US model, which is community organising, to build those new voter coalitions, which means working closely with community groups. And your first response there to if I was MP in Hartlepool would be work with community groups. You know that was not that would not be Paul Williams, I suspect's first first response. Um, yeah. To, to, to yeah. That but yeah, but yeah, yeah, as I say, um, really, really positive. Um, and yeah. um, not, I don't regret for for a moment doing that, and it's inspired me yeah. to to carry on and and to engage with other other left groups as well to to well to further the democratic socialist movement, really. And it's really just nice also, you know, on a personal level to hear you talk about how nice Hartlepool is, because if we think about the way it's been represented in media after that election, it's just a place people buy idiots. Like you saw that, like all that response online to those two men talking about how, oh, we've had a Labour government for ages and nothing's changed. Well, the reason why they're saying that is because the Labour movement was nowhere to be seen in their communities. Let's not, the, the, the attitude that people have, it's kind of like, oh, um, politics is passive, like the Labour Party is passive because they're not in government. They can't do anything. They can't possibly do anything. 
Well, sorry, like there, there are activists consistently trying to do things all of the time. And, and this is who should be Labour's supported. Labour's just taken, taken that vote for granted. And yeah. I think also to, I hated on the social media, the mockery of those two gentlemen. Um, yeah. Because I, I think I think for me, they were trying to stereotype, um, they were dismissive of, of those two men's voices. And the thing is for me, that the public have been, many of the public anyway, have been misled with Tory policy where local councils have been starved of cash for over 10 years. So uh, public services, uh, the infrastructure has not had the investment and the Tories set the narrative, oh, it's the fault, often of a Labour-controlled council, it's their fault. Um, and so what these people are seeing is, is is they can't see the difference between what is happening at local government level and what the yeah. the, the national government are responsible for. So there's this confusion yeah. about funding yeah. sources. and But that doesn't mean to say that we poke fun at people who say, well, we've lost this, this and this. It suits the Tory yeah. narrative for people to believe that. Yeah. And they've constructed yeah. that. You know, in my view, it also, it, it does to a certain degree also go beyond narrative, because if we think about it, if you're a voter in Hartlepool and you've got the choice between someone basically nodding and winking at you and saying, vote for me and your town's going to get money, or you've got the other side, which is holding up a pint next to a flag again and again and again. I know we did that as well. Cause I'm a <laughs> <of> flag. <laughs> but, but it was, you know, we were making fun of it, right? And then he, there was that other interview, right? Those two men got a lot of attention, but there was also those two women who were also interviewed who said, Keir Starmer's coming up here, holding up flags and pints and thinks we're all idiots. You know, why, why, were, why was her voice not amplified? Why, why, were, why did social media pick on those two gentlemen rather than these other people in Hartlepool saying that they saw straight through what they were doing? And if you live in somewhere like Hartlepool and you can choose for a party that says, I'm going to transform your town or I'm going to patronise you, who do you vote for? Who do you vote for? You, of course, vote for the Tories. It's rational. I mean, they with the choice that they had before them, that was the rational choice, and that is the failure of the Labour Party. Yeah. I think the worst thing well, it, was... Um, sorry, Tom, i just say this. No, no, you're stand right. over to you. Um, the, the worst thing for me was somebody had knocked on somebody's door, quite an affluent area, a new housing estate, and the chat was so nice. The people, you know, generally were so lovely, and he said, well, I'm really sorry. This is a blue household. Uh, we're voting Tory. We're giving it a go, and if it don't work out, hey... And I just thought, what does that say? You know, that we'll give it a yeah. go. And, and so yeah. you've got, you could see it, historically you haven't voted uh, Tory, um, but people were saying, well, because we don't know what Labour stand for and, and it just seems to be flags and pints, we'll go with the Tories because, we're, well, the Ben uh, Hutchin is it, um, that the, is the mayor, uh, sweeping victory, but he's had loads of funding um, for the new airport, etc. And his success story is what helped deliver the Tories' victory in in Hartlepool, wasn't it? And so yeah. they've seen that, yeah. and they've said that will happen in Hartlepool um, because yeah. of the the success of the mayor, the Tory mayor. So yeah. lo- lots lots yeah. of things in play there as to what. One of the things that one of the things that's quite important to re- to realise, I think, is that the Tories won with 20% of the vote. Um, And so it's completely possible that had there been a 
a you know a proper Labour candidate with a proper saying something uh, uh, selected by the people, it's completely possible that they could easily have t- taken twenty percent of the remaining. You know, eighty percent didn't vote. It's not. Um, it's it's not a convincing thing. This Tory red wall, really, is it? Um, it it's just a collapse. It's not even. Um, it's not even necessarily a whole bunch of people flocking to the Tories. It's it's more just people going. Well, what's the point? Yeah, that's um, yeah. the saddest thing, Tom. I think. You know that 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 kind of oh I'll have a go at Tory or I'm not going to vote at all. I think that is yeah. Yeah. that's what we've got to address, in my opinion. Yeah. So the other thing I I want to just go it's quite it's it's quite odd talking to I mean I know I've had quite a few chats with Thelma about sort of regional party NIP but not really we haven't really gone into it it's kind of quite odd because it it makes a conversation uh for example we had Clive Lewis on here I don't know if you heard it or not. He was, he, he yeah, was yeah. It, it was good, and um, he's uh, got a lot of energy and a lot of uh, and he's a lot of dedication, and he's he's actually very left wing, and uh, I could see him being playing quite a big role in in turning things around. Actually, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's going to be the charismatic leader we need or anything like that but I could see him certainly playing a big role in in turning things around for the left um but one of the things that he said that I found really interesting was that he said we we have to change the political system you know the voting system blah blah right I totally agree with that but you can't change it if you haven't got the power to change it so somehow or other we have to the left have to get hold of the power and mm-hmm. then they can change the system and so he Clive's big thing is we've got to make an alliance of everybody on the left and that includes the green party the left of the labor party all the disaffected Labour Party, uh, probably the NIP, the, all these tiny little parties that are springing up here, there and everywhere. We've got to somehow bring them all together under one big alliance and then we can deal with this 20% of people that are just voting for the Tories. It's not rocket science, really. It's pretty flipping obvious. What's not obvious is how we get to do it. And I mean, obviously, we want to get Clive back on and have a go at him and say, well, come on, you've got this big idea. Tell us what you're going to do. Anyway, I just obviously... When I heard about NIP, I was like, oh, not another splinter. A bit the same as when I heard about... When I left the Labour Party, I got into Resist. And I was fine with it at first because it was like, we're not setting, we're not a party. We're just, mm. you know, trying to bring everybody together. And I think that still is their policy, actually. But there's they're still, they're still mutterings there of another party. We don't really need another party, I don't think. We just need to bring everybody together somehow. I don't know how you feel about that, Philip. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I, I think that on principle, the notion of a progressive alliance, um, like, makes sense on paper. But if we look at the way, for instance, if we're including the Liberal Democrats in that, the way that they behaved in 2019 and where they stood candidates, they lost Labour Party Kensington and they should never have stood in Kensington. That was an outrageous thing to do. I don't, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't trust the Liberal Democrats at all. And I say that as one of those people under New Labour 
uh, one of those students who voted for the Liberal Democrats because I couldn't vote Labour when it, when it under Tony Blair, you know, like, <laughs> and how I'm just so angry still. I'm of that generation that will never support them, and I don't trust trust them. Um, but I do support a new electoral system, and I can see the logics of the argument. Um, the biggest obstacle, I think, to what Clive Lewis wants to set out to do is the Labour Party itself. So he needs to figure out how he, if he wants to do this. He's going to capture the Labour Party before it continues its descent into, into a non-existent force. The Labour Party has no money now. It has no members. Everyone is leaving. It has no vision. It's just becoming this empty shell. And unless there's some action you know that 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 pacification theory the Labour Party is just gonna disappear um and then you will get groups like NIP you know where is in some sense symptomatic of that collapse um you look at the local election results and you know the Greens did very well because you're gonna Labour right now is in the position where it's thought it's going to be eaten from the right and the left um and it will it will become a non-force so like unless someone you the problem with the progressive alliance is that you kind of, because you're bringing all those forces together, you kind of have to move towards a sort of soft left center. And I just, even that seems unimaginable now, now with Peter Mandelson and Keir Starmer. Oh, no, you and, don't have that. No, you don't have them, do you? Yeah. You have to have so them. They have to, there has to be a leadership challenge then. And then, okay, so Kai, so here, let, let's, Game it right. Clive Lewis stands for leadership after leadership challenge. There's not enough members of the Labour Party to vote for him to win now. I mean, I don't think I'll be able to rejoin. <laughs> no, no. What, what I'm seeing, because obviously I know Clive as a, as a friend, um, but what I'm seeing publicly from Clive is he's getting more and more outspoken, and I'm watching him with interest. <laughs> Um, because, uh, you know, we see the SCG and, and some in the SCG are, are very dear to me and um, I respect their decision to, to stay in Labour. And I know they're working very hard to get the messaging out. Um, but but it, it strongly worded letters, rallies, petitions are not going to cut it. Um, and we know that from, from uh, you know, our NIP work. Um, but for Clive... He's very brave, is Clive, I think. And he is, as I say, becoming more and more outspoken. And you can feel, I can, knowing him, his frustration. Um, because he's had this vision for this progressive yeah. alliance for a long time. When he stood for the leadership and then mm. pulled out, um, you know, shortly, mm. shortly afterwards. Um, he mm. was the one for me, even though actually, you know, I was supporting uh, Becky Long-Bailey. Um, he was the one that did keep stating his vision for, uh, without electoral reform, what needed to happen. Um, and I, I, I wonder whether in the near future we might see something um, happen with Clive where he might take that yeah. next step. I'll be quite interested to see whether he does or not. But I can sense from what he's saying um that he's he's almost like saying to scg and and people on the left still in labor come on can't you see what's happening there's this political vacuum and something needs to happen um so i'm 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 really interested in what's happening there yeah 
but you know there's 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 an interesting sort of nip proportional representation link as well insofar as like one of the arguments made against greater devolution to the north is that the northeast assembly was rejected so one of the same arguments made to reject proportional representation is that av was rejected but what unites both of those um, um projects is that they were kind of like not really what was needed and were put forward and then rejected but av is not very good proportional representation it's a tiny bit more tiny bit better than first past the post northeast assembly was basically an expensive talking shop both were rejected by the by the electorate and now that's assumed or used as an argument to suggest well those issues are dead we gave you the opportunity to have electoral reform and you voted against it we gave you a northeast assembly and you voted against it but the truth of it is that both, neither of those things were what actually was needed so there is still space for that. And I think that more and more people on the left, especially when it comes to issues of both devolution and electoral reform, um, understand that we have to do something to make this country, well, I'd like, you know, like say a little bit more normal. Because I don't think people realise that we don't live in a normal country. No. We, it's no. it's well, very strange. Well, looking at that Queen's speech, uh, that recent Queen's speech, yeah. um, and, and you look at that, and I mean, it is to me, just a threat on our democracy, a further threat on our yeah. democracy. And that voter ID, you know, when we're talking about electoral reform, it's almost like each step is taking us further away from the possibility of that with the with the current yeah. uh, constitution and the way the control, yeah. coercive control, really, of, yeah. of, of Westminster. Um, it's, yeah. it's very worrying. Um, you know, it's linked again, like like Tom was just saying there about um, 20% of the electorate voting for the Tories. Most of the time, people don't vote for the Tories. And then we're also told by the mainstream media that Britain is somehow like a naturally conservative country, small C conservative, large C conservative, whichever. We're always told that somehow that's the obstacle to democratic socialist projects in the UK is that we're naturally this or that. But if that's the case... Why do we need to gerrymander the electoral system? Why do we need to have voter ID? Why do we have first past the post? Why do we have all these systems in place to limit and dilute democracy such that 20% of people can vote for a party, then they get an, an MP, even though the vast majority probably would vote against? The, th the thing that got me was the um, outrage at the suggestion that there ought to be kind of um, ID or whatever to say you'd been vaccinated before you went in the pub. Um, but yeah. then... Very little, very little sounds about yeah. against against having ID to vote. I, I just think our our country's mad at the moment. I just but, yeah. Well, well, you don't you don't you don't buy a pint in the voting booth, do you? That's the reason, right? If the, if if they did, if we voted in pubs, maybe they maybe there would be a change oh, on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've got one more question for both of you here. And, and this is some. This is very relevant to what we've been talking about, uh, and and even more so ha having listened to Philip talk about his uh, problems he's having with the Liberal Democrats. That was a um, really interesting. Now, because I I like to try and bring people together, and I like to try and help everyone get along, and so on. But things happen in politics. People say unfortunate things occasionally and they make enemies or they do the wrong, make a wrong decision. And uh, there's a few classic examples. Uh, Owen Jones is a classic example. Um, John McDonald, classic example, uh, when he pushed, the, he jumped on the thing with the, um, you know, uh, saying that the Labour Party should support the um, 
another referendum or whatever. And, and um, Caroline Lucas is a classic example, OK? She made a complete hash of the uh, Brexit vote and it turned a huge amount of socialists and lefties, potential Green supporters, turned off because basically she was saying she didn't trust Jeremy Corbyn. And so when people make these gaffes and it splits the left, like basically Liberal Democrats, I mean, I think it's a bit unfair to talk about Liberal Democrats too much because they, they've cursed with some terrible... Yeah, I mean, that, that was just appalling, wasn't she? Can't even remember Josh her Vincent. name. Josh Vincent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was just an unbelievable, uh, you know, just something odd. Um, yeah. the, there's probably a lot of Liberal Democrat members who are probably perfectly nice left-wing, or not left-wing, but soft left people. Anyway, yeah. my point is, how can people, you know, if we're going to take against people all the time because they make the occasional mistake or they get something wrong, that's what their tour is love. That's how they operate they can make as many mistakes as they like they never take against each other they can do the most terrible things and they still support each other the left yeah. as soon as you say one word out of place you're persona non grata so we have to somehow get past that don't we and i want you both to answer that please okay well, well I, I, I go on then you do you want to go you, first Phil. Elmer? Uh, well <laughs> i was gonna say, I, yeah you go okay i was gonna say that like um the problem with the Liberal Democrats, um, in terms, it's not it's not an issue of saying things with the Liberal Democrats, right? I think there are certain things that have to be just non-negotiable, and one is austerity. And the Liberal Democrats supported and upheld austerity. They had an opportunity to vote for an arguably more progressive or thoughtful candidate, Lila uh, Moran, is that her name? Um, and she, you know, she supports UBI. She has like innovative policy ideas. Um, and then said they went for another night of the realm. Uh, <laughs> and they have, you know, the Liberal Democrats have that tradition where some of them support austerity, support austerity, some are more on the left. But we have to have issues that we say these are red lines. And one has to be austerity. And if you're a pro-austerity party, then I don't think you have any space in a progressive alliance. The Liberal Democrats always talk about progressive alliances, but then they go and like their actions are different to their words. Um, the Greens, it's different. The Greens, I think, you know, they have many important policies as well that we can learn from. Uh, I mean, controversially, as most of the internet knows, I do live in Brighton. <laughs> so I do have a Green MP and it, you know, like I don't, it just has to be on a case by case basis where you have your red lines and just can't, it's not, it's not, I don't mind when people say things wrong. I don't like purity politics. I don't like that expectation that we always have the right opinion on everything, but actions and opinions are different. And the Lib Dem Liberal Democrats have made actions in government that aren't unforgivable for me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I would agree. And obviously I was there um, when there was a chance for a, um, a government of national unity or a caretaker government with Jeremy. And um, both the Greens and the Lib Dems massively let the side down, in my opinion. And I don't think we would be where we are now as a country if they had acted differently. Um, so that will forever stay with me. But I think what you're implying by your question, Tom, is, you know, if we're going to move forward, um, then there has to be a stage where you have to say, 
okay if we're going to change the world for the better. And what we have to always remember is, as politicians, what are we in politics for? And that is to change things and improve things. And if you're a socialist, it's to improve things for the most vulnerable um, in our society, or it should be. And it should be to deliver a more equal and fairer society. So I always pull it back with a question like this to what are we in politics for? It doesn't matter what your party politics are. But we're at a stage, I think, in, um, well, not just nationally, but, but globally, we can't afford this ideological purity, to be honest. And I, I actually think there's that shared goal, what unites us, and that is social justice, ending inequality. Um, and I do have issues with, I, I think you need to look at with a person at their track record, you look at a political party and you look at their track record. And with the Lib Dems, I have to say, I'm with Philip on that, because I just <laughs> look at tuition fees. I I, I just yeah. look at how they behaved when there was a chance for that for that caretaker government. Um, I, I look at the Nick Clegg Cameron coalition and they Lib Dems were complicit in that austerity, those years of austerity and that delivery of austerity. Um, and the trust has gone. Although, again, Leila Moran, her education when I was in Parliament, her how she spoke out on education was actually far, far more radical than, than Labour were coming out with at times. And now, she was just this week in Parliament, been talking on Palestine and Palestinian rights. Um, yeah. So, you know, she was the wrong choice. Labour would have been, well, they're, they're in trouble anyway, but it would have been even worse um, for Labour if Leila Moran yeah. had been selected as leader. So my thoughts are yeah. I'm working on a personal level to try my best in my own small way to bring the left together. And um, I do believe that you have to always look at what unites us that can steer us forward and who are we working for? And as I say, that's that's the most vulnerable and to deliver a more equal society. So that's what I feel, Tom. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, want, yeah. I, want to say anything else, I Philip, just on think that? About when people talk about luxury. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the thing is, that the way it often manifests itself is like um, we need an anti-Tory, anti-Tory coalition, right? And that's the same kind of stuff that me and Thelma and everyone in the NIP would get on social media, people saying, you're going to split the anti-Tory vote. But we have to be a little bit more intelligent about these things and ask, you know, is what does splitting the vote mean in the context where you have a political party that is shifting so far right that it's almost outmaneuvering the Tories on the right? I'm not interested in, po in politics as just changing the colour of the rosette. Like, I don't, I just don't think that it's not a sport for me. Yeah. Well, that's it's what populist a, governments do, don't they? You know, that's what's in yeah. Labour. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and you know, if, Jer you know, one, whenever you're canvassed for, for Jeremy, nobody ever said to you that they're all the same. You never heard they're all the same anymore. You, people might have disagreed with him um, or uh, they might have they might have taken issue, but they knew where he stood. And he stood somewhere that wasn't the where the Tories stood. And he's still and now, standing there. <laughs> he's still standing. He's still standing there. there. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just I'm not in like I'm pro coalition, provided it's not just anti-Tory. It has to be pro something 
And that's what Thelma was saying, social justice. We shouldn't have food banks, full stop. There should not be food banks in the, one of the richest countries in the world, right? They need to go. Um, and that's, you know, that, that kind of thing. So just a just a final one, Philip. Sorry, just just to say, Philip. Sorry, we were trying to get in before we run out of time. I just want to know the future for for NIP. Then, Philip, what's your what's your next steps? Um, so, I've put forward a motion uh, for our next executive committee to move towards um, having a supporter system because we have lots of people in the south, maybe like Tom, who'd want to support our project. But because they're in the South, they feel that the movement's not for them. But so we'd have a system where people can join as kind of supporters and we'll get them a blue whippet badge, like a blue Peter badge. <laughs> and then we can, and it'll be, you know, a pound to five pounds a month, just so we can actually have the money to run proper campaigns. And then just keep building, keep building like uh, an organisation, keep building talent and, and, and skills and ability where we can, you know, if we are facing a great realignment in the electoral configurations of the UK, I would like the NIP to stand up for Northern Socialists um, if the Labour Party is refusing to do that. And I do that as a point, a point of principle, not as a, oh, you're going to spit the vote type of thing. No, like, I'm sorry, there's, if I if I was voting in Durham, I'd have no one to vote for now. I might vote for the local, I'd be sure, right? But the, the problem is, is that, you know, we, we I want us to build an organization and then that might involve working with people in the future it might well involve that um but at the moment what we're doing is we have so many young new activists Selma you've been to the meetings you've seen how young and and and, and hopeful everyone is and and that's that's a few that's a future those are future politicians those are future organizers and future activists so skilling that up to start building towards um, finally ridding ourselves of this t curse of a Tory government. That's where we want to go, um, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Really good, Philip. Just for the record, I want to just put on record on, on the podcast. I don't think the answer is going to come from the Labour Party, just in case you <laughs> yeah. thought I was. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty certain that that isn't going to happen. Uh, yeah. I, but I might be proved wrong. Um, okay, great podcast. Wonderful. Thank you both. Um, and um, before I finish, I just want to say um, we are going to do a Patreon page um we've thought about it long and hard it's costing us a bit of money i've put i'm putting all the details on the facts and figures we're not going to run at a profit we're just going to cover our costs and anything over our costs that we make we will give to um i think trussell trust food bank um and uh we will let you know if and when we get to a point where we we make our costs it's just for the production costs of the podcast it's quite a bit each week so um, that there, I'll put that detail, those details up on the description of this podcast. Um, thank you so much, Philip. It's been great listening to you, and uh, hopefully you'll come back again, and I'll have another go at you and uh, try and pull the rug out from under your feet. Um, oh, we want to hear about Yemen. <laughs> yeah, it's been great, and Thelma, it's been lovely to have you back, and um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to you both. And uh, next week, our guest is Laura Pidcock. Really looking forward to that. Uh, so I'll pass you over to Thelma to say her goodbyes. Yeah, well, thanks, um, Philip and Tom, and uh, solidarity with the Palestinian people. Well, our thoughts are with you all.